0: So, yeah. So as we were talking about beforehand, we're up to chapter 3 in Melachim, right, in Kings. And last 2 weeks what we were transitioning from speaking about the end of King David's life to the choosing and the solidifying that King Solomon, King Shlomo HaMelech is going to be the one to take over afterwards. And then at the end of last week's chapter, we read about how he takes over. And immediately he takes charge and he follows King David's advice to be a man, right? And to act with a sense of uh, control and be authoritative, because that is completely necessary for a king to be authoritative. Okay, so now we're going to transition further into speaking about King Solomon. Now, what gets interesting over here is, and this is what Chuck was mentioning beforehand, the timing of this entire chapter is not so clear about when it takes place. So, Chazal, our sages teach us that King Solomon was 12 years old when he became king. And this is based on making a calculation of how old David was when he he, uh, slept with Bathsheba and when he married Bathsheba. Okay, so making that calculation, we know how old King Solomon is. At what time period does this take place? What we're about to read. So, the assumption is that the time period in which this takes place is at the beginning of this chapter, verse 1 is actually when he is 16 years old, okay? Let's read what takes place then. Solomon allied himself by marriage with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Now, there's an interesting word if you look at the Hebrew, right? It's a little bit of an interesting phrase. And that is because when you look at the Hebrew, the word is, Vayitchatein Shlomo et Pharaoh. Now, chitun, right? We know what this, this word means, right? The word that we use often is michutanim, right? Michutanim, means people who have a relationship by marriage, okay? Now, you might hear this word most commonly used referring to my in-laws, right? So the people who we share a children with that the union, my child with their child, we call ourselves right? But technically it really means anybody who has a relationship by marriage. Now, it's an interesting perspective to speak about the fact that he enters into a relationship by discussing who his father-in-law is, right? That's not the typical way of discussing. Typically you say, I married a woman. This is who her father is. But instead, it's reversed over here. He enters into a relationship by marriage with the king of Egypt. Now, how did he enter into this relationship? It could be many ways. He married Pharaoh's daughter and brought her to the city of David to live there until he had finished building his palace and the house of the Lord and the walls around Jerusalem okay so that is the end of the first point that we want to start with as i said traditional That's a good question go ahead how is it the pharaoh agreed to have his daughter marry this over there in jerusalem it's like it, it's, it's a good question so so we're, as we read further in the story we're going to see that he's not he's not a pipscalef and he is an incredibly powerful individual. And we'll read what the sages have to tell us, but and even, not even in this chapter, but as we read further in the book of Kings, we're gonna get a sense of how he was this, he, he was the person who everyone wanted to marry into their family, you know. Uh, picture, I, I, today it doesn't really exist anymore, but you know, let's say, uh, uh, trying to think of an example, Charlemagne, like a, someone who was a very clear leader of the world, right? So everyone would want to marry into his family, right? Alexander the Great, everyone would want to marry his children, right? So I'm not sure if he had children. How come he marry the good? That's a good question. That, that, that we, he's so that, wise. That's that, not wise. It's not wise. It's not wise at all. We're going to see what the Gemara has to say about this. You're right. You're right. Um, OK, so what we're assuming right now is this happens when he's 16 years old. And as I mentioned before, when he's 16, indeed, it makes sense that Pharaoh would be rushing to marry his daughter off to Solomon, right? Okay? Now we then continue in verse two. Um, you know, let us just point something else out about this first verse. It says he had he brings her there until he had finished building his palace and the house of the Lord and the walls around Jerusalem. Right now, if you remember, what did David want to do before he died? Well, David David wanted to build a temple to Hashem, and we read that Hashem says, no, it's not going to be you. You have too much blood on your hands. It will be left to your son Solomon, right? Which definitely has a relation to the world. Shalom, right? Shlomo, shalom, it's a similar word. It's referring to peace. It has to be a man of peace who will build the temple. That's purpose of that temple is to express peace between those on earth and those in heaven. Not peace in terms of not being at war, but peace in terms of being shlemut, in terms of being complete in terms of fulfilling the mission. And the way to fulfill the mission is to be able to build a house in this world in which we can sense Hashem's presence and connect to Hashem. But that has to be Shlomo HaMelech. David has too much blood on his hands. That was one of his mandates when his father said, you're going to be king after me, you have to build a temple. What we are told over here implicitly, is: this is four years into his reign, he has not yet built a temple. Instead, he's busy making political alliances, right, with the king of Pharaoh a little further, right? And just just to remember, though, as a question, if indeed we are positing that we're skipping to four years down the line in terms of where he's up to, right, we're about to see that we're about to go back in time as we read further in verse 2 and so on. We're going to go back in time, okay? And we're going to have to deal with that. If indeed The sages are correct, we're gonna take that as for granted, that the sages are correct when they say this happens at 16. Well, then why do we then go backwards, right? We should really start the other way around, as we will see. And that's a question to keep in mind. The people, however, continue to offer sacrifices at the open shrines. Okay, what's an open shrine? So in Hebrew, the word we use for this is bamos, okay? And right here, bamos, okay? A bama is what is called, bama is singular, bamos is plural, right? memhe is singular. It is a private altar. It is not a communal, a national altar, but it is a private altar that people would build in their own backyards to bring whatever offering they felt necessary. Now, if you look in the Hebrew, you get a little bit of a different sense than in the English. Rak ha'am baba babamot. Rack implies that there is something negative. There's a negative connotation about this. We start off by saying he has not yet built, finished building the, the walls, has not yet finished building the house, right? We then continue to say, and the people are unfortunately, or the implication is, they are still sacrificing at the open places. Why? Because at that time, no house had been built for the name of the Lord. Right? Why is this relevant to us, right? The, the way it works is like this. A quick primer. The way it works is like this. When there are certain time periods in Jewish history when it is only permitted to bring a sacrifice, either in the temple or in the tabernacle, where the temporary tent was being moved to, or, alternatively, in the site of where the temple used to stand, according to the Rambam, according to Maimonides. Technically, if we want to, do, if it was at all feasible in a political sense, we would still be able to bring a Karban Pesach today a Paschal sacrifice today. We don't need a temple, according to the Rambam, according to Maimonides. We just need a place where the temple stood. Okay, But it is limited to only there. right? There are certain time periods in Jewish history when, as I said, you were permitted to sacrifice in specific places and nowhere else. Only where the temple is located, only where the tabernacle is located. There are other times when you're permitted to sacrifice anywhere, when there's not considered to be a permanent dwelling place for the temple. At the time that this story unfolds, the our own Kodesh, the Ark containing the tablets, right, the Luchot, and also the Torah that Moshe had written, resides in Jerusalem, in the city of David. The main altar of the tabernacle currently resides in Giv'on, right? So keep that in mind. Because they're in two separate places, it is still permitted to bring what we call private sacrifices on your own private altar. So... Back to our text, okay? So what are we saying right now? We're saying that they continue to offer these sacrifices because there's no specific house. Now, we then continue to verse three, and this is a pivot here, a big pivot. If you look at the Hebrew, you will see a pay before the gimel, right? The gimel indicating verse three, there's a pay before that. The pay in, in the Masoretic text, the pay and the samach symbolize the end of a topic and beginning of a new topic. So what it's teaching us is that the, this, these first two verses needed to be understood as one point. The second verse is going to be telling us something different. What is the verse going to emphasize now? And Solomon, though he loved the Lord and followed the practices of his father, David. Get used to that phrase, everyone, because that is a phrase that we're going to be very familiar with when we finish learning uh, Kings, because it's going to constantly emphasize whenever it is speaking about a king. The bar, the litmus test, for are they a righteous king or not, is going to be, did they follow the practices of David, okay? So, what we read is, he also sacrificed and offered at the shrines, okay? Now, it seems to be a little bit of a, once again, a negative implication, right? And Shlomo loved God. To follow in the decrees of David his father, the ways of David his father. rock, only right? The implication is there's one thing in which it didn't quite reach the level of which he should have reached. okay? Now the problem is, I just finished saying before, this is a time period in which it is permitted to have personal altars. So why is he being criticized for sacrificing on personal altars? So the way Rashi explains, Rashi says it's very simple. What Shlomo Amalek is doing is he's sacrificing on private altars without recognizing that this is a time, as soon as it became possible for him to build a temple, that should have been his first priority. And that should have been nothing else on his mind until he got that temple up. And he was content to continue offering sacrifices in the open altar, in the private altar, because he did not fully comprehend the importance of having a specific central location. And this is a criticism of Solomon, And then we also understand that previously, this is also related to the criticism that the people were still building because he had not yet built in the big place. Now, verse four, the king went to give on to sacrifice there for that was the largest shrine, right? In Hebrew, we say that is the largest Bama, right? Which means platform. On that altar, Solomon presented a thousand burnt offerings, right? This is the, the hint the idea that a thousand burnt offerings is not worth even one day of King David sack, sitting in and learning Torah. Now, here we're going to read a story that takes place when Solomon is 12 years old. So we just jump back in time now to where he's 12, starting verse 5. At Gibbon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And God said, ask, what shall I grant you? Solomon said, You dealt most graciously with your servant, my father, David, because he walked before you in faithfulness and righteousness and in integrity of heart. You have continued this great kindness to him by giving him a son to occupy his throne, as is now the case, right? And now, O Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father, David. But I am a young man with no experience in leadership, right? So what we are about to be privy to is, right? I don't know if you've ever, if you've ever had like the dream. I literally just tonight was reading my daughter, Aladdin, right? Um, so the, uh, you know, the idea of saying, this is not the genie, this is Hashem, right? Hashem speaking right now, there is nothing that he cannot do, right? And he says, what is it that you wish for? And King Solomon at 12 years old has the great wisdom to recognize what the most important thing is. So it's important to recognize previously what we said is, that King Solomon has become the accepted by the hierarchy, by the, by not the hierarchy, but the upper echelon of society, the priesthood and the wealthy people and the generals, he has solidified his rule amongst them. But we've mentioned in the past, the idea that to be the king is also somewhat of a democratic process, right? It is ruling, yes, by the priest deciding, who the high priest being involved in, in anointing, yes, by the prophet, Yes, by the high, by the upper echelons of society, but also by popular acclaim as well. Now we're going to read this story. This is going to be clear that this is going to be um, right at the beginning of his reign the story is taking place. Now the way that we know that the previous part of the story takes place four years down the line, it's a, a little bit of a complicated uh, calculation, but it, that that is the assumption that everyone is working with based on on tradition. Okay. Now Your servant finds himself in the midst of the people you have chosen, a people too numerous to be numbered or counted. Grant then your servant an understanding mind to judge your people, to distinguish between good and bad, for who can judge this vast people of yours? Very important thing that we are being told over here. Why is King Solomon asking for a lot of money? He's not asking for a lot of money because he wants to be able to invest in the stock market wisely, right? Not not a lot of money, a lot of wisdom, right? Why is he asking for a lot of wisdom? He wants to be the on the cover of uh, you know the Mensa Society because he wants. That's not what he wants. He's very clear. The reason I want to be wise is so that I can help people judge, and I can help judge the people. A big part of what a king, part of king's role in Judaism is to judge over the people. Right. If you remember, when the people came to Samuel, when they asked him to find them a king, what they expressed is. Their hope that he can appoint a king to judge over them. Right? So Solomon says, Listen, I am not coming to this from any sort of selfish place. You're offering me anything I want. I could have asked for wealth. I could ask for anything that was, you know, a personal self-aggrandisement, right? Personal, so for personal benefit, but I'm not asking for that. And even the wisdom that I'm asking for, I'm only asking so that I can judge these people properly. The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. And God said to him, because you asked for this you did not ask for a long life you did not ask for riches you did not ask for the life of your enemies but you asked for discernment in dispensing justice right the word in hebrew is lehavin right lehavin right? right if you look right here lehavin havin hahavin lishma'amishpat right? right that you're asking for wisdom right there are different words for wisdom in hebrew right uh, there is uh, you know, Chabad, if you guys are familiar with, the word Chabad comes from Chachma, Bina, and Daas, right? So Chachma means knowledge, knowledge that you have acquired, right? That you know that, uh, that gravity is what makes things stay connected to the earth, right? Then Bina is the ability to distinguish between two seemingly similar ideas or to, con- or to contrast between two things, right? And then Daas is considered to be the highest level, which is the ability to extrapolate, to learn something out from one thing to the other. The word bina is the shoresh, is the root of the word havin, right? So this means to be able to distinguish between good and bad, to be able to distinguish between right and wrong. Okay. The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. And God said to him, Because you asked for this. One second. Yeah, so it has actually changed. I, I thought so. So if you look at the Hebrew, it says, right? That's one of Hashem's names, right? Then what it says is, right? Elohim refers to when we're talking about the attribute of justice, right? And Adonai is the attribute of mercy, okay? So the Hashem said then, because you asked for this, you did not ask for long life, you did not ask for riches, you did not ask for the life of your enemies, but you asked for discernment and dispensing justice, I now do as you have spoken. I grant you a wise and discerning mind. There has never been anyone like you before, nor will anyone like you arise again. Now, right at this point, what seems to be implied is that the reason why Hashem listens to his request is because he is happy with the request. And that's why he does as he has asked, okay? But perhaps the implication would be if you would have asked me to be wealthy, I would have said no. Now, if you remember, Hashem said, I will grant you what you wish for, right? Can you imagine if, if in the stories of the genies, you know, so to speak, we don't really want to compare Hashem to a genie. But if you ask for something, you, say, nah, you know what? I don't think I'm going to give that to you, right? It doesn't work like that. Hashem said he's going to give you what you ask asked for. So what exactly is he referring to when he says, I will give you what you ask for? Because you asked nicely or because you asked something that I'm pleased with, right? So I think the answer is if you look at the next verse in verse 13. And I also grant you what you did not ask for. Both riches and glory all your life, the like of which no king has ever had. Okay, this starts to answer the question that Alana had. Alana's question was, why would the king of, of Egypt be interested in having a relationship, a marriage relationship with King Solomon? Well, this is actually going to come true, as we will see shortly. And he does become fabulously wealthy and fabulously well-known. And, and everyone comes to him to offer you know, pilgrimage and to offer tribute that be connected to him. So it's not surprising at all. Now, I wanna point something else out too. We say in the Shema, right? We have the first bracha of, the first paragraph of Shema, the first chapter, perek, in which we discuss the fact that we are supposed to cleave to Hashem with all of our heart, with all of our soul and so on. In the second paragraph of Shema, we talk about the fact that if we listen to Hashem and we do what he asks us to do, we will merit material benefit, right? We will have great amounts of crops. We'll have good cattle. We'll have material benefits, right? And then what we say is if we do not listen to Hashem, we will not have material benefits. We will get punished. The heavens will withhold the rain, right? And so on and so forth. And the question is why in Shema, which is all about, it's our motto. It's our most holy prayer almost, right? And we're focusing on the relationship with us and God. And we turn it to this very mercenary type relationship where, oh, if you listen to me, I'll make things good for you in this world. That's not what it's about. It's about the next world. It's about being the best person you could be. It's not about receiving material reward. So why is that the focus of the Shema? So the answer is, when one is doing the right thing, all obstacles are removed in terms of their material needs, in terms of their material processes that we have to spend time on. That's what we're put into this world. After Adam eats from the Eitzadas, right? From the fruit of the tree of knowledge, he is told, Bazea sapacha. By the sweat of your brow, you will earn a living. We have to work to earn a living. But if your focus in life is to always do the right thing, and to spend your days helping others, to spend your days learning Torah, doing mitzvot, Hashem will smooth your path and make it easier for you to have your material needs. So what Hashem is really saying to King Shlomo, since you asked such a wise thing, I see your mindset. I see where you're heading. I see your trajectory. I want to tell you, I'm also going to grant you other things. Why? To ensure that you can properly take these gifts, given your set of character traits and given your skill set, and it can embody what it is that a king is supposed to embody in this world. So I'm going to grant you all of the material wealth beyond what anyone can imagine. And then the hope is that you will exhibit qualities that will make other people say, we want to join the Jewish nation." Because who wouldn't want to join the Jewish nation if this is the heights that one can reach? Okay, And obviously when people say that, there will be a tremendous uh, uptick in terms of connecting to a monotheistic God. In terms of leaving behind the, what the system in place at that time uh, across Mesopotamia. Right, and, and to Israel, which was all about it at that point. It was not monotheistic, right? It was completely polytheistic at that time period. We're talking, we're talking 2,800 years ago now, right? So, what Shlomo Amalek was going to do is bring a message of monotheism that monotheism will help you reach the pinnacle of material success, which will help other people connect to Hashem. Once he, convince, once he tells Hashem, This is what I yearn for, Hashem says, You are worthy of receiving those material benefits. He then continues in verse 14. And I will further grant you long life if you will walk in my ways and observe my laws and commandments as did your father, David, right? So that's the kicker right at the end, right? If you walk in my ways, these things will come to you, right? Now, the first things he didn't say it about, he only said it about the last thing, about long life. He did not say it about the wisdom. He did not say it about the wealth. That's is going to come regardless. But in terms of having long days, that is dependent on him following in the ways of his father, King David. Okay, so before we go on to the famous story, probably one of the most famous stories in all of Tanakh, and uh, before we do that, I want to look at a source sheet because I want to answer Reuben's question, which is how could Shlomo armalach have married a woman who is from Egypt when well, she is not Jewish? Uh, so let's go look at our source, source number two. Uh, source number two is like this. Without without getting into what the Gemara is talking about, it is the Gemara in Yivamot, okay, which deals with the levirate marriage, right? When someone dies without leaving behind children and leaves a wife, his brother is supposed to either marry that woman or uh, do chalitza, do the the severance uh, um, action to to sever that relationship. Okay, in that tractate, which obviously is not only dealing with levirate marriage, it is Gemara after all, and the Gemara deals with everything. So. Rabbi Yosef raised an objection from the verse that states and Solomon married the daughter of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, which indicates that there can, in fact, be valid marriage, even with Gentiles. What the Gemara was asking is like this. If someone has a marriage ceremony with a Jew and a Gentile, is that going to be a marriage ceremony? Right. And the answer is, the Gemara tells us, it will not be a marriage ceremony. It will not be a valid marriage. They can live together. There's nothing stopping them from that. There is free will. But in terms of saying there will be a halachic marriage taking place, no such thing. So the Gemara's question is, well, Reuben's question is, he married a daughter of Pharaoh. She's not Jewish, and yet it seems to say he's married. The Gemara answers, before Solomon took Pharaoh's daughter as his wife, he converted her. Okay? She indeed converted. Now, why would the Gemara not have thought that initially? Why is the Gemara even thinking for a second not like that? Right. Why was the Gemara, oh, I have a great question for you. How can you marry a non-Jew? Hello, she converted. Why did the Gemara not go there right away? Right. So the Gemara says like this. The Gemara asks, but, uh, sorry, Alana, we'll talk about it afterwards, okay? But isn't it so that they did not accept converts, neither in the days of David nor in the days of Solomon, right? This is a principle. And this gets back to what we were talking about earlier. It really hits to what Alana was saying earlier. The Jewish people were on such a pinnacle Of society that people would want to convert to Judaism, but not out of a desire to get close to Hashem. It would be an ulterior motive conversion. And we did not at that time take ulterior motivated conversions. Okay. Without getting into the Pandora's box of conversions today. And you know, today it certainly seems that we take people who do seem to have ulterior motivations. They want to marry someone who's Jewish, right? Without getting into that conversation. But in the days of King David and days of King Solomon, they did not take converts and therefore it must be he didn't marry he did not convert her previously and yet still the marriage took place Gemara's question was how could it be that he accepts her as a convert right we don't accept converts during those days the gemara answers but isn't the reason that they did not accept converts during those periods only due to concern that the converts were not acting for the sake of heaven but in fact desire the power of the table of kings david and solomon in other words there'll be ulterior motivations why? Because they wanted to join in the wealthiest country in the world, the most powerful country in the world. This one, Paro's daughter, did not require such things, and she herself was the daughter of royalty, and therefore there would have been no doubt, to doubt no reason to doubt the sincerity of her conversion. Okay. So I, I see what time it is. We're gonna we're gonna have to just the gemara, the gemara is now gonna get into a further conversation about the fact that if someone converts from Egypt, you're actually not allowed to marry them. That is the law, a first generation convert, second generation convert, only a third generation convert from Egypt is permitted to be married into the Jewish people. This does not apply today because we don't know who Egypt is, right? Someone who lives in Egypt today and converts is not necessarily, or probably not even half likely to be a descendant of the Egyptian people who enslaved us, okay? But in the times of King Shlomo, it was still the same people living, the same nationality. And therefore, he would not have been able to marry her if she converted. And therefore, what the Gemara finishes with is he did not actually marry her. But rather, the reason why the Torah says he married her is because he had such a loving relationship with her. It was the equivalent of being married. Okay, He was not legally married to her at any time. So to answer Reuben's question, he was engaged in a relationship that was not halachically sanctioned. Right? It was not a marriage relationship, okay? And I think this really helps us understand why it is, let's go back up to the earlier part, why it is that we are focusing at the beginning out of order. We're starting to talk about he, he, he solidifies his seat and claim to the throne. That was the previous chapter. Now we start talking about embarking on his career as the solidified, accepted king of the Jewish people. And the first point that we bring is that he marries this woman. It's even out of order. This really happens four years later. I think what, what the, that the prophet, the Navi is trying to teach us is a lesson about the seeds of what causes ultimately the downfall of the Jewish kingdom. And it really begins right here. I think that's what's going on. And I think that's why it's placed at the beginning of chapter three and not at the end of chapter three, where it should have been. So let's read back to verse 15. He wakes up after the dream. And Solomon awoke. It was a dream. Now, to be clear, it wasn't a dream like you or I are having, a dream where we're falling and we can't, uh, you know, we can't stop ourselves or we lost our teeth or you know, woke up on the train without any clothing on. That's not the type of dream it was. What, what we mean to say is this is a very, very clear vision from Hashem. He recognized that it was a prophecy. It was not a prophecy while awake. It was a vision while there are Two types of prophecies. He went to Jerusalem. So now he leaves Gibbon, goes to Jerusalem, stood before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, and sacrifice burnt offerings and presented offerings of well-being. And he made a banquet for all his courtiers. So now that he's had this dream, he now has come to the recognition of the importance of bringing the sacrifices at the ark that is placed in Jerusalem and not at the altar that is placed in Gibbon. So he brings these offerings there, okay? Now, if you think about it, the ark represents the Torah. So it makes sense now he would bring to the Torah itself, as not, not, not that he's bringing the offering to the Torah, God forbid, but that at the place where the Torah is located. Now, here we come to the example of his wisdom. Later, two prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. The first woman said, Please, my lord, this woman and I live in the same house, and I gave birth to a child while she was in the house. On the third day after I was delivered, this woman also gave birth to a child. We were alone, there was no one else with us in the house just the two of us in the house. During the night, this woman's child died because she lay on it. She arose in the night and took my son from my side while your maid servant was asleep and laid him in her bosom. And she laid her dead son in my bosom. When I arose in the morning to nurse my son, there he was dead. When I looked at him closely in the morning, it was not the son I had born. The other woman spoke up. No, the live one is my son and the dead one is yours. The first insisted, no, the dead boy is yours. Mine is the live one and they went on arguing before the king. So we're supposed to be given a sense over here of a 12 year old boy sitting on the throne with two women come in front of him with an impossible question to decide. It's it's real, she said, she said. And just to give a sense of the tumult in court, right? They're screaming at each other, right? No, it was my. no, it was yours. They're going back and forth at this. And what 12 year old is gonna have any sort of presence of mind, right? The king said, One says, this is my son, the live one, and the dead one is yours. And the other says, no, the dead boy is yours. Mine is the live one. So the king gave the order, fetch me a sword, right? So we're supposed to be reading this in puzzlement. How is he going to get himself out of this problem? We were just told that he's the wisest man of all, but how do you possibly know the answer to this question? Get me a sword. What's he going to do with the sword? A sword was brought before the king and the king said, cut the live child in two and give half to one and half to the other. Now, this is not a uh, Talmudic uh, division that would be satisfactory. What the Talmud tells us is that when you have two people fighting over a specific garment, if they're both holding on to the garment, you rip it in half, right? Now, that's talking about a garment, by the way. But if it is the type of thing that if you rip it in half, it becomes valueless or loses its value, instead, what we'll say is each party is given the right to buy the other one out. But over here, what he's saying is give me a sword, we'll cut it in half. Now, what exactly is his intention with saying so? What was his intention? So let's see what the reaction is. But the woman whose son was the live one pleaded with the king, for she was overcome with compassion for her son. Please, my lord, she cried, give her the live child. Only don't kill it. The other insisted, it shall be neither yours nor mine. Cut it in two. Then the king spoke up. Give the live child to her, he said, and do not put it to death. She is its mother. When all Israel heard the decision that the king had rendered, they stood in awe of the king for they saw that he possessed divine wisdom to execute justice. So what we are told over here is that now the rest of B'nai Israel have also recognized, the rest of the children of Israel have recognized the wisdom of King Solomon and accepted him as their king because they see that he has divine wisdom, right? He is able to execute justice. As we said earlier, that that's the role of a king is to execute justice. And what they're now recognizing is that he has an incredible gift, right? The wisdom to engage in this subterfuge. Now, what the Gemara asks is like this. The Gemara says, maybe the woman played him, right? Maybe what happened is like this. Maybe you have two women and they're both sitting there thinking, what, which option should they say? If they say, yes, cut it in half, right? then that shows that they are that they, they don't really care about the baby. But if they say to, to that, rather give the baby up to the other one, then clearly they care about the baby and that would make them more likely to be the mother. Now who speaks up first? The one who says, don't cut it in half. Maybe she would just wanted to say this because she was hoping that the other one would say the opposite and then she would be the one to end up with the kid, right? In other words, somebody might make the argument, Listen. If I'm really if it's really my kid, I would never give it my own kid. So maybe I would say, I'm rather I'd rather you cut it in half. So the fact that she's willing to say, don't cut it in half, give it to the other woman. Maybe this is all part of her game, right? You know uh, it it, it, remind, it reminds me of um of the Princess Bride, right? the princess bride when he's having a bargain with the Sicilian, right? And he's trying to figure out which which cup has the the Iocane powder in it, where you have the poison as a completely odorless, and invisible poison in one of these two cups. And they're trying to figure out which cup has the poison in it. What would you do if I were you? What would you do if you were me trying to trick me, trying to trick you, right? So that's what's happening over here. How do we know that this woman is not just trying to trick Shlomo Hamalach? and really she's the one who is not her child, but she's hoping that by making belief, she will be the one to end up with the child, right? So the Gemara actually tells us that this was a voice of heaven that came out that said, she is its mother, right? And the Gemara tells us further, uh, not the Gemara, I'm sorry, some of the commentators suggest perhaps Shlomo HaMelech actually foresaw this possibility that somebody could try to trick him by using this subterfuge that really they are the mother. By saying, oh, give her up, that would, that would indicate that she's the mother, even if it's false. So therefore, what happened over here is really, what Shlomo HaMelech recognized listening to their stories and watching their faces, he actually knew who was the mother. He was convinced who the mother was already. But he needed it to come out through a confession, through a way that the rest of the people would recognize the truth of his judgment. So therefore he, he goads them by taking the sword into showing their true colors. And indeed they show their true colors, right? Now, if they both would have said the same thing, I wanna give up my child to the other one, they would have been up the creek, right? It would not have been clear at all who the mother was, right? But the one who said, I wanna give up my child knew that the other one would say, Um, it's okay to kill it, right? Now, how did she know that she would say it's okay to kill it? So there's a really fascinating midrash over here, okay? If you guys have some patience for this, okay? You ready? Like this. The halacha is, as I said before, when a woman dies, not leaving behind any children or grandchildren, right? Then she is now going to have to marry her ex-brother-in-law, right? If a woman's husband dies, right? These two women were actually mother in law and daughter in law. Okay. So the daughter in law, okay, the daughter in law child has died and her husband has died. Now she's going to have to do Yibum. To who? To the other baby. The baby who she tried to steal. Why she tried to steal the baby? Because then she doesn't have to do Yibum. She doesn't have to get married to her, anybody because she's free to do as she pleases right? She has her own kid, and there is no brother-in-law for her to marry. The, the grandmother says, listen, I want to have a, if it's not my child, it's my grandchild. I will not let this baby die. But the the woman who is the purported mother and daughter-in-law, really, right? So as far as she's concerned, if this isn't my baby, I want this baby to die. Because if it's not my baby, I'm going to have to wait for that baby to get older before I can even get married to anybody else. And we have to do the Yibum process. You, lo- you lost me somewhere. Okay. The, yes. Let me, it yeah, if, let me explain again. Yeah. Let me explain again. If it's the daughter's baby. Yeah. Then how could that, then if it's her son, that can't, she can't go through Yibum. Correct. So, so this is what happens. Okay. So you have a, let's call them woman A and woman B, right? Woman A is the mother in law, woman B is the daughter in law. Okay. So they both have children. Now, after they have these children, the daughter in laws husband dies now the halacha is like this if a, if a woman's husband dies without leaving behind issue then she has to get married to her brother-in-law okay now her baby dies she would have been exempt from yibum because she had a baby her baby dies the next day so now she's going to have to do yibum so when she comes up with this great idea on the spot i'll steal the other baby and in one fell swoop i will have eliminated my brother-in-law because i'll say the brother-in-law died and i'll have my own child i won't have to do yibum I won't have to wait for the child to become 12 or 13 years old to do yibam. Okay? Now, the grandmother says, listen. Rabbi, if, but there were not good women. Did they even have husbands? You're assuming that they're prostitutes. They probably, yeah, listen, that's the option also. The, the, the reason what the madrash is working with has to do with the terminology of saying that there's no one else in the house, which is a typically the phrase that is used when it comes to doing Yibum, it's, a, it's a very reminiscent of that. And therefore the Madrash is assuming that perhaps it's related to Yibum. But just, just this one little point that I wanted to bring out, it's an interesting point. If, the, if we're talking about a grandmother daughter-in-law, the grandmother knows, listen, one way or the other, this baby is either my child or my grandson. So even if indeed her story is right, I am not going to let this baby die. As far as the daughter-in-law is concerned, how could she possibly be ready to kill a baby? What is going on over here? What is she thinking? Even if it's not her baby, why would she allow baby to die, right? What sort of an evil person would do that? To allow a baby to die just for your selfish desires Because you wanna have a kid. What what is this? What kind of business is that? So the Madrash is saying the only way to explain it would be that if this baby is not hers, then she's going to have to wait 13 years for that baby to grow up. And she's not a nice person, certainly, but at least it makes it a little bit more understandable how she can acquiesce to having the baby die, okay? Rabbi, why is there even this discussion when it says in 26, then spoke the woman whose the living child was unto the king. Then spoke the woman- Right. the living child was unto the king. It tells you that she's right here, that she's the mother of the child. Right, so so it's not telling you that we knew that, it's telling you in like the, the narrative voice, right? We only know that she is the mother of the living child because of the fact that she exposed herself by saying, I'll give up the baby, I don't want the baby, right? But until, if we knew beforehand, then of course there wouldn't be any conversation. What we're dealing with is, given the information that they had at hand, it was not clear whose baby it was. And it was only because he did this trick to get her to say, I'll give up the baby. I don't want the baby, it's her baby. I was lying, it's her baby. That itself was the expose that it really was her baby. And then we can start describing it, that is whose baby it was because it became abundantly clear to everyone right? As soon as they, in Yiddish, we would call this an einfall. right? An einfall is when something just becomes like, it just hits you over the head, an epiphany. Of course, this is whose baby it is. So the reason why we start describing it all of a sudden as the woman whose baby it was is because as soon as she said, I'll give up the baby, everybody's like, oh, brilliant. Of course, that's whose baby it is, right? Yeah. Hey, what is Yibum? Oh, so sorry. Yibum is when you do the the marriage. So somebody if somebody dies without leaving behind children, and they, a man dies without leaving behind any children, and his wife, uh, and he has a brother, and he has a wife, then the brother has to free his wife. Today, the Ashkenazi Jewish tradition is that we do not do yibam, which would be leveret marriage, which is that the brother marries his sister-in-law, right, if, if the, his brother did not leave behind children, but rather we always do halitza, which is that you free You free her up to marry whomever she wishes through a process you take off your shoe it's a a complicated procedure and yeah. How come they didn't include that if they if there was no brother that. The father of the son who died would be obligated to marry her. So before the Torah is given. And even after the Torah is given, there is something more akin to what you refer to, like a proto Yibum, right? That's what we call it. Because Yehuda marries Tamar, right? Who is his daughter in law, right? So over there we do find something akin to Yibum. But once the Torah is given, the Yibum is very specific that brother and a brother, and that's it, nothing else. Okay. Um, so next week, next week, Wednesday night, I will not be available to learn um, because. Um, my wife Leah is going in on Tuesday with some kids and I'm going to go on Thursday morning early. And I'm just, I, I don't think it's going to be feasible to learn the night before. Um, what I am going to do next week is though, so I am giving a class on Tuesday night at eight. Uh, the class is going to be about the Haggadah. We'll go through like parts of the Haggadah, just, to help refresh everyone so that when they come into the Seder night, they'll, they'll know what they're doing. They'll have some, some good questions to ask and hopefully some good thoughts to share at the Seder to make it more meaningful Seder. It'll be from eight to nine. uh, And I hope everyone can come next Tuesday at eight o'clock, the same same link as usual. Take care, everyone. Be well, bye-bye.